All right. And before I begin, I just want to give you um, two. Every every week, I'll p give you a couple of book recommendations. So because we can only do so much within forty five minutes, but if you would like to read more about this particular topic, you can. And I'll use I'll probably give you one book that is more uh, reader friendly, more accessible by the lay lay person, and another book that is more scholarly. That would be more like stuff that we read in seminary, during seminary training. So uh, I wrote it down right here. One is titled Canon Revisited by Michael, Michael Kruger. Um, he is a PhD from Edinburgh, New Testament scholar, teaches right now in Charlotte uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. He's the president of that seminary as well. But this book, um, although he's very scholarly in his training, he's done his very best to make um, uh, his material, his research accessible to lay people. I found this book very engaging, not too difficult to read. Canon Revisited. So it's talking about how the canon, the biblical canon, the books that we have in the Bible were formed, especially in the New Testament. Now, if you want to go one step more in-depth, way more in-depth actually, you can look at Who Chose the Gospels by Charles Hill, uh, published by Oxford University Press. This is um, extremely well-researched. He throws Greek at you and gets into a lot of uh, early manuscript and documents. Very well-researched, well-documented stuff. Um, and as a seminarian, I struggled to read through the whole thing. But if you want to really get to the nitty-gritty, this is where you want to go. Uh, he's a PhD from Cambridge University, one of the top scholars in New Testament history. All right, so here's one that's more accessible. Here's one where if you feel like nerding out on canon, that's the one to go to, all right? Cool. Great. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and, and, and start. God, we thank you for gathering us and giving us this opportunity to be equipped uh, to present our faith and defend our faith for the purpose of glorifying you uh, also to love our neighbors by uh, giving them the timely, uh, winsome answers that can help them in their spiritual walk, uh, that can answer uh, the, the burning questions in their minds, and with the hopes of um, not only sharing our faith with them, uh, but helping them to come to faith as well. Uh, so guide us in this, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and equip us and more than anything else, give us a love, a heart of love for the lost uh, that Jesus had. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start off with this. Um, since As we're opening up this series, uh, this is the passage from the Bible that's going to kind of lay the principal sort of attitude and foundation for us. And the passage is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. You can flip that open in your phone Bible or iPad Bible or your physical Bible. 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Okay, so a couple of things here I just want to point out as you go. It says here, 
always be prepared. Always be prepared. And it's a command, right? It's a command. We're supposed to be equipped and ready for what? To, to make a defense, to give um, this defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. Right? So um, you've got to be willing to equip yourself um, to ready yourself for anyone who might come to you and ask you, potentially come to you and ask you a question about your faith. Right? It's a command for you to be equipped. It's not optional. And it says here, uh, anyone, and that means your coworker, your friend, your family member, stranger on the street, right? Uh, the only sort of way to narrow down anyone is like basically people in your culture, I guess, in your society, right? People living in 2018, Atlanta, um, maybe uh, with a certain um, cultural sort of influence of what they think about the Bible and Christianity and things like that, and they'll probably ask their questions stemming from that. But, but it could be unpredictable who asks you what question, right? It says be prepared for anyone. And so you need to have a general preparedness uh, and understand that this is a challenge. It's a challenge today to really present the faith to the people around us because uh, evangelism has become a very complicated matter today where um, you have people who have some experience with the church, who have certain um, caricatures about the church, uh, they have strong feelings about what the Bible teaches about sexuality. Um, they have certain stereotypes about Christians with certain political views. You're dealing with all kinds of stuff that people in the 70s and the 80s did not deal with. And so you have to be extra ready, if anything, to do evangelism today. Right? So uh, training for evangelism is become, has become more of a necessity than, than before, arguably. So be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. You have to give a reason, meaning be reasonable, right? Be, to some extent, persuasive and winsome. Give a reason, right? Not just an emotional sort of case for why you believe what you believe. Anyone can do that. Mormons can do that. Jehovah Witnesses can do that. Give a reason. Be reasonable for what? For the hope that is in you. It says the hope that is in you, meaning it's something that it's actually um, defining who you are. This is something you live by. It's not just something you intellectually agree with. It's not just something you assent to in your, in your mind. It's something deep inside you. Right? It's a testimony you carry within you. Make this about you, your hope, okay? your identity. And it says, make sure you do this with gentleness and respect with gentleness and respect. Uh, gentleness is what? It's an attitude, right? It's a tone. It's, it's the way you carry yourself. It's the way you present your case. Uh, there's a gentle way of presenting an argument, right? So argument is not a bad thing. Uh, you can present an argument as, as long as you do it with gentleness. And so it's okay if, for example, the content of what you're sharing is offensive to people, but it's not okay that your tone, your attitude, your physical language is offensive to people. That should just convey gentleness, right? But it's okay if the gospel itself is offensive, but it's not okay if your tone is offensive, if your attitude is offensive. And with respect, now what does that mean? How do you respect a non-believer, a non-Christian with doubts and skepticism? 
respect their doubts and skepticism. Right? Don't just uh, uh, categorize that as, oh, you're just stubborn and, and, and resistant to God. Right? Um, these could be good questions. These could be reasonable questions that even Christians ask. Right? Give them, show them respect. Respect their doubts and skepticism. And say, you know, I have questions too. That's a good question. And I, I actually have the same question that you have about this. And, and maybe that's why this is, this is a fun exercise. Maybe this shows us God is not just a product of our cultural imagining, right? Just compatible with everything we believe and think. There's something very ancient about him, very mysterious about him that we can figure out together, right? Respect their doubts, all right? So even if others are reviling you, you will not mirror that and reciprocate that, but you will mirror Christ. Your good behavior in Christ may, be, may not be put to shame, all right? Okay, so that's our sort of, sort of principal attitude behind all this before we get into this. And here's what I want to do. I want to tackle a couple of big questions, give you some data, facts. Um, along the way, before I move on to one question to the next, I'll give you some time to uh, ask a follow-up to that question if, if you feel like it's not addressed or if you wrote a question that hasn't been addressed. And we can discuss some of that as, uh, before we move on. And the first question I want to ask is this. Is the Bible historically reliable? Is the Bible historically reliable? So the, uh, the common objection that, that people give, people raise about the Bible is, uh, think about the telephone game where you have a row of people, right, from one person to the next, they transmit a message, but by the end of the line, the message is not at all what the, uh, the first person originally stated. It gets sort of uh, uh, twisted and corrupted and changed over, over time over different transmitters or translators and then the message you have at the end is not at all what you had in the beginning and so the, and the Bible is written over 1500 years right um, with, with countless number of translators and transmitters so how is that historically reliable okay that's a very common question that you might get now the first thing I would do um, in, a, in a situation like that is ask them this question first. Is history a scientific discipline? Do you consider history to be a scientific discipline? And, and that's another way of saying just, do you take history seriously, like as a study? Is this something that universities should be taking seriously as they do, right? So for example, you know, do you take the history of Caesar seriously, Plato seriously, or Homer's Iliad, seriously. Do you take those as historical facts, historically reliable facts? And so far for me, 10 out of 10, right, 99% uh, of the time people have said, yes, I do. I take those as historically reliable, okay? So, so they, if they acknowledge the historical investigative method as valid, right, um, then I'll move forward from there. And, and, I'll, and I'll, give them, I'll give them some evidence, okay? And this is something I would encourage you to memorize, just to be able to pull out of your toolbox, okay? Um, the number one thing is this. The number of manuscripts matter. When it comes to historical reliability, the number of manuscripts matter a whole lot. Uh, the more you have, the more it's cemented as historical truth, okay? Um, so just to give you like a, Context, the number of manuscripts for Caesar's Gallic Wars, 10 copies. We have 10 copies of those. 
Plato's writings, seven copies. Okay. Homer's Iliad, we have a lot, 643. Right, that's a lot. How many ancient New Testament manuscripts? Any guesses? 1,500? Okay. Huh? Yeah, yeah, the Greek manuscripts. Six hundred. Going once. One. No. Okay. Here. Ancient number of ancient New Testament manuscripts: twenty-five thousand copies. Twenty-five thousand copies. By the same historical standard we apply to Caesar. Plato, Homer, the, new, the historicity of the New Testament is in another league. Okay. So um, if you consider Caesar, Plato, Homer to be cemented in history, right, uh, the New Testament record right, is the, the most historical thing you can ever find if you apply the same standard. Okay. So the number of manuscripts matter. Right? We're in the varsity league when it comes to manuscripts. The dating of manuscripts matter as well. Okay? And this is another thing I would just encourage you to memorize. All right? just, just keep it in your head. All right, let's compare again. Caesar's Gallic Wars were written originally 100 BC. And the earliest copy we have is dated 900 AD. All right? So it was written 100 BC and it was dated as early as 980. So how many years apart are they? from the original writing and the earliest manuscript we have. About a thousand years in between, right? Uh, with Plato, it was, that was written about 400 BC, and the earliest copy we have is right around 900 AD. How many years in between is that? From the original writing to the earliest manuscript, 400 BC. 1,300 years, right? Somebody, did, somebody paid attention in math class in, you know, in middle school. Right? <laughs> So, so, so you have a thousand-year gap between, you know, Caesar's Gallic Wars, a thirteen-hundred-year gap between uh, Plato's writings. Right. Here's the New Testament. The New Testament was written around forty-five to ninety A.D. That was when it was written, and the earliest manuscript script we have is of John, in A.D. one twenty-five. So, from ninety A.D. to one twenty-five A.D., how many years is that? 35 years, 35 years, right. Um, so, so compared to the 1,000-year gap that Caesar has, right, and the 1,300-year gap that Plato has, uh, the New Testament manuscripts and the dating of that is almost like historic, historical data-wise. It's like comparing cave paintings to videos in terms of the, 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 the precision we have and the, the, the nearness we have to the original writing only three decades. And, and that's fascinating because that means the people who were written about and the towns that were written about still existed. And that makes it very easy for you to corroborate what's written. Okay. Uh, it takes about, yeah, right about 900 years or so for legends, any kind of legendary things to develop. But even then, we consider Caesar and Plato and Homer to be historically cemented. Right? There's just not enough time within 35 years for anything legendary to develop. It's way too early of a dating, okay? So dating of manuscripts matter. And again, New Testament is in a league of its own. So I would just commit those two things to memory.
the number of manuscripts. Well, no, start off with, you know, um, this is not to trap them. It's just to help them be self-aware historically. Do you, do you consider Caesar, Plato, Homer to be historical facts, right? Do you know how many manuscripts we have of them? And then, and then bring out the number about the New Testament manuscripts and then tell them about the dating stuff, right? So if you consider this to be historically reliable, why not the New Testament? Okay. Are those facts? Yeah. Those books, or like if they ask where your source was? Um, yeah, I was. So if you go to who chose the Gospels, he gets into a whole lot of detail about dates and stuff. But but this is actually not controversial. So um, um, the only way you would question these, I think I think atheists who question these facts are reading from some internet atheist website, but it's not what New Testament scholarship, any, any sort of antiquity, scholarship and antiquity would consider to be you know, valid. So one good example is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a, uh, one of the top New Testament scholars in the world. He's an atheist and a hardcore skeptic, and he agrees with the dating. He agrees with these datings. Okay. And, and he's out there debating with the internet atheists. Like, dude, you're, you're being ahistorical. You're being non-historical when you make these arguments. You're only making your case weaker because history is a science, and you've got to work with the data in refuting Christianity. And he does, like, Bart Ehrman does that. He has other arguments against Christianity, but dating is not one of them. The number of manuscripts is not one of them. So, and Bart Ehrman is right here. He's at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Yeah. Like uh, about the the existence of evil, evil and suffering in the world, which we will get to in this series. Okay. Yeah. Question. When you're talking about like manuscripts, are yeah. you talking about like that different people wrote, so there's more like evidence from different stories to like validate each other? Because you're talking about copies. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good question. So when you have the reason why it's a good idea to have a lot of manuscripts is then you can then cross check them to see if you have variants. Or so if you have a whole lot of variants, then you can question its validity, you can question, okay, which one do we trust, that kind of thing. Um, when it comes to the New Testament manuscripts, most of what they found in terms of variants were simply spelling errors, spelling differences. And you would expect that with just human, because you don't copy paste, you would just write word for word. Uh, spelling errors that don't change the meaning significantly, that's all they found, essentially. Yeah, which is fascinating for, for documents that have been preserved for over a thousand years to have that little variant. Okay, so again, I would just you know push them on the historical point. Okay, uh, and if they say you know that's not convincing to me, well then neither should be Caesar, Homer, Plato. Okay, that, so that's where I would go with that. Okay, so I so that's where I as a Christian would say I'm I'm standing on historical data, but I you seem to be having trouble with, with history itself as a discipline. I mean, that's not your beef with Christianity. You're, that, your beef is with history as a science, right? All right, now, here's the second question. Any, well, any other question about the first question? Here's a second question. Why claim that the Bible is God's word? And, and the first thing I usually say is, well, if you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is God-breathed, meaning scripture itself testifies concerning itself that it is God's word. 
So, so, so wait, so they'd be like, wait, isn't that circular? You're saying you believe the Bible is God's word because the Bible says it's God's word? Isn't that circular? And I would say, to some extent, yeah. To some extent, yes. And this type of circular reasoning is something you practice as well. And they'll be like, what? I, 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 don't, I don't believe in circular reasoning. And I'll ask them, well, okay, how do you go about you know, determining what's true and what's not. And they'll say either, they'll, they'll say one of three things. Usually they'll say either it's by reasoning, science, or my senses, my sense experience. That's how I determine what's true, right? Now, here's, the, here's where I help them see the circularity in what they're saying. I'll ask them, what, if they say, I believe in my reasoning skills, I'll ask them, what makes you believe in your reasoning skills? What tells you your reasoning skills are reliable and they'll say my reasoning tells me my reasoning is reliable how's that not circular right or or I, I trust in science I believe in science if, if anything scientifically valid then I'll believe in that okay what what makes what tells you science is the only reliable way to do approach reality what makes you what tells you that science is reliable well, the scientific method tells me the science is reliable or if, I, if somebody says, my senses, I trust in my senses. If I can touch it, see it, smell it, I'll believe. What, what, makes, what, what tells you that your senses are real about and, and they'll fall back on, right? My senses tell me my senses are real. You cannot avoid this kind of circularity. Everybody has an ultimate assumption. Everybody has an ultimate presupposition. That is, that is the case. And philosophers actually identified this in this branch of philosophy called epistemology, uh, it's a, branch, it's, it's a branch of philosophy that studies knowledge. It, there's this thing called epistemic circularity, meaning everybody has at some point something they consider to be self-evident, and you just lean on that and treat that as your foundation. Right? You assume it. So one very good example of this is the, the, the law, of, law of logic and law of non-contradiction. Like if, if x equals x, then x equals x. Right? If x is not y, then y is not x, right? Well, how do you try to, I mean, try to prove that. Try to prove the law of non-contradiction, and, and as soon as you try to do it, you're, what you find yourself doing is you assume, you're assuming the law of non-contradiction. You have to assume logic to talk logically. Even trying to refute logic takes logic. You have to assume something at some point. Now, that, that's the first thing I would point out for them but, but here's the second part of that response. Our claim to the Bible's reliability and it being authentic God's word isn't just about that. It's, 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 it isn't just I, just, I just have circular, I just have circular reasoning the way you do, and so I'm justified. It's really not about that. There's, it's much more than that. We believe that the Bible carries within itself certain divine qualities. Okay. So our faith in the Bible is not simply because we, we feel like the Bible is speaking truth to me, okay? Um, I, I want to just go with this circular reasoning other than the other circular reasoning. That's not what we say when we say we believe the Bible. We be, when we say we believe that the Bible is true and we believe that the Bible is the word of God, that's not what we mean. But that's actually what other religions say, right? They can say that and they do say that. You know, they say we believe, you know, subjectively or emotionally that this is God's word because it convicts me in a certain way. You know, Mormons literally say it's this burning in their bosom that proves to them 
that the Book of Mormon is God's word. That's not what we believe about the Bible. It's not just because there's this burning sensation in our hearts. What we believe about the Bible is that the Bible contains evidence of its validity, right? And it contains within it certain divine attributes and characteristics. And let me just mention a few of these things. And again, I would commit these to just memory, just by paraphrasing and putting in your own words. First, the Bible has a miraculous unity. Okay? It's written by 40 human authors over a period of 1,500 years. And these authors have lived in different continents at different times, speaking different languages. But the unity of these authors and their central message about the broken world, the promise of a Savior, and God providing this Savior in Jesus Christ, and then the coming renewal of this world, is this sort of thick, bold thread that weaves through the entire narrative of the Bible. Incredible unity throughout the entire Bible. 1,500 years, 40 authors, but there's one story about one God, about one message, and one final destiny. That's incredible. This is not some way to compare, for example, the heroic tales of Hercules and the heroic tale of Superman. It's not about parallelism. It's one story. This is saying Hercules, Hercules is Superman. Right? That's a whole different way of arguing for parallel right, uh, stories. It's not a parallelism. It's, it's actually a direct and, and, a, and a continuous narrative. That's what the Bible is. The offspring promised in Genesis that will crush the serpent's head is Jesus Christ. Right? It's the same story. And that's, that's a miraculous unity uh, in the Bible. It also has miraculous prophecies fulfilled. In the Bible, there are over 300 prophecies referring to Christ the Messiah. 300. That, for example, that he'll be born in Bethlehem, He'll be a descendant of David. He'll be betrayed by a close friend. He'll be sold for 30 pieces of silver. His hands and feet will be pierced. He'll be crucified among thieves. His clothes will be divided and lots cast for it. And he'll be buried in a rich man's tomb. And these prophecies were made hundreds of years before Christ. And um, there was a mathematician who tried to figure out the mathematical odds of only these eight prophecies being fulfilled by one man, just coincidentally, okay? And the odds he came up with were one in, ten, one, one in 10 to the 17th power, right? At 17 zeros, right? it, it's, it's, beyond, it's beyond winning a lottery ticket. Okay? The odds are miraculous, okay? And the Bible is something that not only is confirmed by science, it, it corrects science in a way. It has more truth in it than what we consider to be scientifically true. Did you know that up until 60, 70 years ago, all of science pretty much determined that the universe was eternal and never began to exist? Right? Up until 70 years, so cosmology was basically saying the universe is all there is, all there ever will be, all there ever was. Right? It's, it's an eternal existence, the universe. Until the Big Bang Theory came out, not the, not the TV show, the, the actual theory, that, that in, a, in a scientific way made a very, very evidential case that the universe actually came into existence from a point of singularity. So time, space, matter, 
came into existence at some point. Okay? And that's how we have the universe that we have today. It did not always exist. There was a, it's strange to say, there was a time where there was no time. Right? There was no space and no matter. Right? But, but that's a recent discovery. What has been saying that for the past three, 4,000 years? The Bible. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? The Bible has always claimed that the universe had a beginning. And, and people thought that was just outlandish, just ridiculous. I mean, science tells us, it shows us, the universe always had existed. There's no beginning up until modern cosmology. Okay. Archaeology is another thing. Um, a very popular example of this, very well-known example, is in the 1930s, they discovered the city of Jericho. And what they found about, what, what they found in the archaeological digging was the, the city walls were interestingly not, um, it, it was collapsed, but it didn't collapse inward because you, usually in warfare the city walls would, would collapse inward, but it collapsed outward, uh, which, is, which, is the, which is consistent with the biblical narrative because it was easy for the Israelites to then take over the city. Up until the 1930s and, the, and, the, and then the discovery, people always went back to the Old Testament, pointed out Jericho and said, hey, that's a fairy tale that's fictional because there's zero data zero archaeological finding of the city of Jericho where the Bible says the, where the city of Jericho would be found. So for the longest time they were saying the Bible is false for that reason. And, and, and biblical scholars didn't go, okay, maybe we should take that page out of the Bible. No, we held on to that truth and only in modern archaeology have we found evidence of a Jericho. Uh, 1947, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls which contained the Hebrew Old Testament dating back to the time of Jesus. And until this time, until 1947, the earliest documents for the Hebrew Old Testament were dated from 9th and 10th centuries. Right? So when the, when the news came out, hey, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they did back to uh, uh, the first century, skeptics loved that idea and wanted to dig into it and point out, ha-ha, see, we're going to prove to you uh, that the Bible we have is not historically reliable. I'm going to show you how much has changed over the past 800 years. Because now we have a first century document, we can compare it with the 800 and 900 AD documents. And what did they find? Again, spelling differences with no significant difference in meaning that doesn't affect the meaning of the text, otherwise exactly as they had it in the first century. Right? Um, miraculous preservation of the text. Okay. After over 900 years, almost near perfect preservation. That's miraculous. All right. I'm going to move on to the next question. All right, there's a lot of stuff. I hope you're taking notes so you can kind of jot down and, and memorize. Uh, any burning questions here before I move on? Yeah. Um, so a lot, I know a lot of this um, so far is, like, great, especially when it comes to, like, yeah. non-believers. Yeah. But um, I'm wondering if the same information um, would be great for believers who might not necessarily feel this way about the whole Bible, but certain books or passages in the Bible where they don't feel as reliable, like Songs of Solomon, or Job not being a yeah, person. Yeah. It's, you know, that yeah. stuff. it's true that uh, historically Christians who believe the Bible have disagreed about certain, certain books of the Bible. So uh, Martin Luther actually thought the book of James shouldn't be included in the Bible, whereas John Calvin argued that it should be part of the Bible. And so there's some of these sort of minor 
debates going on within within the Protestant Church. That's true, um, but uh, I think I think if you're able to believe, right? Let's say, sixty-five of the sixty-six books. Um, I, I would say you're, you're you're pretty much you're pretty much committed as a Christian. If you believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you believe that God does reveal Himself through Scripture. I mean, you're very much within orthodoxy, and you're dealing with you're dealing with a brother or sister in Christ. So I don't think you have to be too concerned about that. You know, like, um, so, but but I think I think it's worth trying to persuade them and show them like other doctrines, like you know, uh, sufficiency of Scripture and you know. God's providence in, in giving us the canon that we have so that we can trust that the way, the way it's been preserved is the way God intended it to be preserved right. and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's yes. a good question. Um, last question I want to show you guys, uh, ask, raise for you guys is this. Why these books in the canon and not others? Okay, why these books counted as canonical, not others? There are a lot of answers uh, you can give to this. And again, these books kind of address that. But let me just give you uh, maybe a couple. One answer is the dating. Okay, Dating is important. The New Testament writings are the earliest we have in possession. Okay? The earliest gospel accounts we have are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? All within the first century. So when people ask you, why, why is the Gospel of Thomas not included in the canon, you can very confidently tell them it's because that's dated late 2nd century with a very high chance of forgery because Thomas died long before late 2nd century. Okay. Most likely a Gnostic sort of um, forgery pretending to be Thomas uh, recounting the gospel story in some fictional way. Whereas Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, again, the dating is far too early for them to be forgeries or legends. Okay? These gospels were written about 30, 50 years after Jesus' death, and Paul's letters just 20 years after the events that he talks about. Okay? Um, and you would hear this a lot. Didn't the Nicene Council assembled by Emperor Constantine around 325 AD, come up with the list of New Testament books. Didn't they just kind of decide these will be canonical books? Okay? And then the Bible as we know it came into existence through that, and Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code, right, some years ago, made into a movie, made that, made that case, although it's a novel, people take that seriously. The problem with this theory, one, is that that's just not what's historically recorded about the Nicene Council. The Council of Nicaea uh, was convened to settle some debates about um, the divinity of Christ. How, how, do, how do we articulate the divinity of Christ, especially in light of this heretic called um, Arius? How do, we, how do we confront that? And they also convened to talk about uh, what has the early church been reading historically as canon, as scripture? What have they been passing on to us? So it was more of a historical investigation of what has been. Okay. But you know, think about it. How could they even begin to examine whether certain books they have are the right books if there wasn't a, a collection of books in existence already? Right? How would they even go about examining whether these are the right books? What are these? Right? We already had a canon in existence before then. Okay. And what on earth were Christians reading for the first 300 years? 
if the Bible came into existence at 325. So, uh, and again, to quote Bart Ehrman, the skeptic, in other words, these councils were declaring the way things had been, not the way they wanted them to be. Okay, that's from Bart Ehrman. Okay, so he says, the canon of the New Testament was ratified by widespread consensus rather than by official proclamation, like by an emperor, by a council, or something like that. Okay. You trace it back in the early church, you, what you identify historically is a widespread consensus of what counts as canon. Uh, the second problem with this is you just can't get around the scientific dating method. Okay. You, can't, you can fabricate, perhaps, uh, a, a historic content, the content of a historical document, but you can't fabricate the dating of a historical document, okay? And, and again, the, the dating for the documents we have don't date back to the third or fourth century, they date, date back to the first century, all right? So, um, so that's important to know, okay? Uh, so these apocryphal writings, these writings that are not included in the canon that you know, Roman Catholics use and whatnot, uh, they, they are, they're dated much later on. Like there's, there's actually one called Gospel of Peter um, that we don't consider to be canonical because it's dated in the late second century and, and it's not even written, written in a way that's historically, historically um, valid. It's written more like a legend. Jesus comes out of the tomb, for example, in, uh, on the third day as this giant whose head reaches the clouds. He comes out like, you know, attack on Titans kind of thing, you know. Um, and, and that's a very Gnostic style of portraying uh, heroes and, and, and in legends, they just they just giant they're just ginormous. Whereas if you read the books of the Bible, page after page, it's not written like a legend. It's written like a historical date document with historical data because it gives you names of people and towns that you can go back to and corroborate those things, right? And if you're fabricating a, a legend, you just don't do that. All right. That's the third question, and that's that's what I want to give you. And, and I have some other stuff that we don't have time for today. But I do want to give you two minutes for. Uh, Questions that you had written down that I have not addressed, we didn't get to, that's related to this topic. So memorize a couple of these facts. Just be ready. Be ready. And, and welcome that person. And, and I think to the extent that you're ready with these facts, I think you'll be able to actually welcome someone who asks you these questions and be like, yeah, let's, let's talk about the reliability of the Bible. Welcome them and give them the reason. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is alive and active, that it is true, and it is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of our soul, um, convicting us of the truth of our hearts, um, and testifying to us the truth of the gospel. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that, that it is really not by our own wisdom that we come to understand your word, but it is by your grace, by your Holy Spirit that teaches us your word. And we pray that we will be able to uh, dive deeper into your word, understand your word better. And we do pray, even as we try to present a reason for the hope that we have, that our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers will carry this hope in them someday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get ready for our Sunday service.